Good morning again, everyone. Good morning again. Sorry, let me catch my breath. Running around a little bit. Ah, it's wonderful to see all of you. Thank you so much for joining us in worship, whether you're here in church this morning or you're joining us online. It's a privilege to worship with you, and thank you for joining us in our celebration of baptism. Uh, that's always a, a wonderful event to do, to see people following Christ in obedience that way. Now, let's begin looking at uh, God's Word this morning. I want to assure you that what you see on the screen and what you see on your notes, if you got the sermon note paper or in the bulletin, I want to assure you that's not a typo. I am very much aware that Election Day is on November 3rd. I'm, I'm very much aware of that, but what I would like our focus to be this morning is really the day after that, on November 4th. I want us to think ahead and to plan ahead to how we're going to respond on November 4th, regardless of what happens on November 3rd. And I know that, uh, you know, there's all this thing with all the absentee ballots and writings. Maybe we won't know on November 3rd. The point is, we're talking about how we're responding after the election. What I want to focus on is how we should live on November 4th, November 5th, November 6th, and November 4th a year from now or 10 years from now. And as we're going to see, I think that's a much more important question than what you're doing on November 3rd. If some of you have longer memories, you may remember four years ago, I preached pretty much the same sermon. And guess what? Nothing's really changed in four years. God still says the same things about what he wants us to live for. And and to be purely realistic here, I was looking at the latest polls from Pennsylvania, and polls aren't, you know, they could be reliable, could not. But according to those, less than 5% of voters in our state are undecided. So I'm not going to spend our time talking about something that most of us have already made up our mind about. But I do want to be clear about how we should think about Election Day before we look at November 4th. As you know, our country operates on a two-party system, and I'm not going to defend this today, but if we take a close, hard look at God's Word and we compare what we see in the world around us, I'd hope we'd arrive that neither party has an exclusive claim to honoring God's will. Neither party is 100% yes, we always do what God says. One party's really great at valuing every stage of human life, emphasizing God's value to see life preserved. Another party says a lot of great things about justice and compassion. And it's funny that we're studying the Sermon on the Mount right now, because if you open the Sermon on the Mount and you ask somebody who was a Republican or a Democrat to support their positions from the Bible, oh, they could find all kinds of things in the Sermon on the Mount for one side or the other. But since neither party's 100% behind God's will, well then what should God's followers do? What are we supposed to do on election day? Well, each election typically has four options. You can either vote for candidates from one major party, you can vote for candidates from the other major party, you could vote for a third party, you could write something in, or you could just decide not to vote at all. And uh, just so you know, I, I listen to what people say at church. I have conversations where I hear people are saying, and this may shock you to know, but there are members of this church who will be doing all four of those things this election day. There will be some members who will vote for one major party. There'll be some who will vote for another. There'll be some who will vote for a third party. There'll be some who think, "I, I don't know if I can compromise any of this, and they'll feel like they can't vote. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay that we don't all have the same thoughts about it. Genuine believers in Jesus Christ can disagree on a wisdom issue of applying their vote. We may have strong convictions ourselves. I think this is the right thing to do. 
But that kind of division should not separate us in the church. And these people I'm thinking of, they've taken the time, and I hope you do as well. I hope you take the time to think about the election, to pray about it, and to make a decision that you believe best honors God, the decision that you will be able to justify on the last day. And if you do that, I may not agree with all of your conclusions, but I know that I can't view myself as more spiritually mature than you are because you vote for someone else. The yard sign that you have in front of your house is not a sign of your Christian maturity. So, friends, I would encourage you to pray. I'd encourage you to read the Word. I encourage you to ask God, seek His will, and make the decision you believe honors the Lord. And I hope and pray something like an election won't tear us apart, something temporary like that. Now, to be clear, so you're not misunderstanding me, this isn't in your note thing, but I just want to be clear. I am not saying that voting is not important. I'm not saying that. Don't hear me saying voting is not important. In our system of government, your vote is your voice. It has an important role. I'm not saying voting's not important. What I am saying this morning is that for the Christian, there are some things that are more important. More important. In the Bible, we're told a lot of things, and a lot of things God instructs us to do. And if we know him, we can honor him by living those things out. And you know what? I've read it quite a few times. You don't see thou shalt vote in the Bible. Now, we can make a case for it about this is something we should do, but that, those words are not in Scripture. But there are things that are in Scripture. And the main point that I'm trying to make this morning, and this you'll hear me repeat it many times, is that the daily decisions that you make to live for Christ are more important than who you vote for. The daily decisions that you make every day to decide to follow Christ in this area or that area, those are more important than who you vote for. I'm not saying who you vote for is unimportant. I'm not saying you don't need to worry about. I'm saying what you do every day, November 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, those daily decisions are more important. What we're going to look at today is a passage from the Apostle Paul, where he's going to tell believers and he's going to give them clear commands. And he's going to command them to pray, to share the good news of Jesus, and to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And I believe that on November 3rd, November 4th, every day, we should emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. So let me prove it to you from God's Word. If you're not already there, please go to the book of Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, or I'll bring it up on the screen right here if you'd like to read it there. And once you're there, uh, I encourage you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today. This is Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. This is what Paul says. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Verse 5, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of celebrating baptism, following people following you in obedience. I pray, God, that you would help us to do the same, to follow you in obedience in every area of our lives. And yes, God, that includes how we vote, but God, it especially includes the daily decisions we make every day 
that impact how we live for you. I pray we'll think about you, pray about those, focus on those decisions so that our lives may be about honoring you, bringing you glory, praising you so that you may be the focus of our life. God, as I would like to say from your word, my prayer is always that you would increase, that I would decrease. May people see more of you in me. And that's my prayer for everyone listening today. May people see more of you, of Jesus in them. It's in your name, God, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So in order to understand where we are, let's, let's talk a little bit about where we are in the Bible. We are in the book of Colossians. So that's a word we don't use often. It's a, a place, though, it's describing a people who live in a city in what's now modern-day Turkey called Colossae. And it's just saying the people who lived there, the Colossians. Paul is writing this probably around the year A.D. 62. But when he's writing this, he's sitting in a prison cell. He's been locked up in the city of Rome because he's been telling people about Jesus. And through a wide variety of events, he ends up in Rome. And now he's writing a letter to this church along with his protege, Timothy. This church he's writing to was strong. They were loving. But just before Paul started to write this letter, they started to tolerate some false views about who Jesus is. And Paul's writing this to say, hey, you need to have sufficient trust. You need to believe solely in Jesus Christ, not these other things that people are trying to get you to believe in. We're picking up today toward the very end of the letter. If you have the book in front of you, there's only four chapters. So we're near the end. And Paul's going to give the Colossians some final instructions. And the first thing he tells them to do is to pray and share. He said, God asked for his people to pray and he asked for them to share. As he says, continue steadfastly, devote yourselves to prayer. They're to have an unrelenting perseverance, a persistence in prayer. Prayer is something we call a discipline, a practice that followers of God are supposed to be doing every day. It's not something we're only supposed to do when we're in need. I need this from God. I have this big test. I have this big assignment, a job coming up. No, it's something we're supposed to do every day, a regular part of our lives, out of a desire to know God better. Friends, you should not be praying more when an election is coming up. I hope you're praying for things like our country and and our world every day and not just every four years when a presidential election comes up. Paul tells the Colossians they're to be watchful in prayer. They're to resist a temptation to be spiritually lazy and think, well, I don't really need to pray about that today. I prayed about that yesterday. He's telling them prayer is a discipline. You need to continue in it. These disciplines, these things that help us to grow, to be more like Christ, they're something we do every day. We repeat them again and again and again. If you were here last week, we were talking about Jesus' words. He was talking about disciplines, ways we grow. He also spoke about prayer, but he also talked about how we give, and he talked about fasting. These disciplines help us to grow. And especially things like prayer and reading God's word. If we miss one day, then it becomes very easy to miss two, which can then turn into missing three. And next thing you know, it's a week before I've cracked open the Bible or I've talked to God. And then it could be a month. And you're like, what have I done? Why have I not talked to my Lord? So Paul says, you need to continue in this. You need to be watchful in it. And as you do it, you should do it with praise and thanksgiving. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Prayer is not just asking God for things. It also includes praising him for who he is 
and what he has done for us. It's our time of intimacy with the Lord. It's where we express our complete dependence upon him. And Paul then tells them about something in particular they can be praying for, something that's burdening his heart. He opened his letter. He prayed for the Colossians, for their faith, that it would grow. And now he asks for their prayers in return. Before we look at what Paul's prayer request is, let's remind ourselves, where is Paul? He is in prison. He's sitting in a prison cell. He's probably chained to a guard, or he's at least under house arrest. If you have your Bible open, you want to look down to verse 18 in chapter 4, or you can look up at the screen. Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So Paul's in prison. He's telling the Colossians, I want you to pray. If it were me, and I was writing to someone, and I was sitting in prison, and I wanted them to pray, I would say, please pray, dear God, get Pastor John out of jail. That would be the prayer request that I would ask them to pray for. If I was thinking a little more clearly, I mean, pray for my release, pray that I stay well and healthy when I'm in prison, pray the authorities would have mercy on me. If I was thinking really super spiritually, I might say, well, pray that I would be faithful to God in prison. Pray that I would endure this suffering in a way that honors the Lord. I would think I need prayer so I can be faithful in still believing, trusting in God. And there's nothing wrong with those prayer requests. Paul would not be wrong to ask them to pray for those things. But that's not what Paul asked for. He doesn't make this request about himself for his advantage. He doesn't ask them to pray for his comfort. He doesn't ask them to pray for his preferences. He doesn't ask them to pray that he'll get out of jail. He doesn't ask them to pray that the Roman Empire would change its prison system so he could be more comfortable and have a speedier trial. No, what Paul prays for, he says in verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. What Paul asked them to pray for is that he would have an opportunity to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He calls it the mystery of Christ, God's plan to restore his relationship with sinful humanity through Jesus Christ. It was a mystery. It was hidden to most, but now Paul's declaring it to everyone. Paul knew that God saves through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And the way God applies that salvation is when someone who doesn't know God, someone who sinned and rejected God, when they hear that truth and they respond to to that declared word of God, when they respond to the good news, the gospel. And Paul knew that he was responsible to share that good news at all times, in all places, and with every person that he could. And so Paul didn't pray that his circumstances would change. No, he prayed that he would have opportunities regardless of his circumstances. It wouldn't have been wrong for him to pray, God, may I get out? God, may I do this? But he didn't focus on that. He prayed for opportunities in his circumstance. He knew that he wasn't supposed to share when it was comfortable, when it was convenient for him. He wasn't supposed to share when he felt like it. He wasn't supposed to share when he wanted to. He was supposed to talk about Jesus whenever the opportunity arose. And so he asked the Colossians to pray for that, that he would clearly declare and explain that good news so that whoever he interacted with would be able to understand and respond to God's truth. 
Paul always prayed this way. He was passionate about this regularly. He prayed that when he was locked up, it would be an opportunity for the gospel. If we look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering. I'm bound with chains as a criminal. But Paul knew the word, the message of God is not bound. And so he goes on to say, therefore, I'm willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect, those who know God, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul was imprisoned. He was suffering for Christ, but he was willing to endure that because while his chains may prevent him from moving, they do not prevent him from speaking God's word. God's word cannot be held in check by the will of men. He would also pray something very similar or mention something in the book of Philippians. If you were listening while we were away from church, we talked through Philippians and we looked at this passage. He says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Yes, I'm in prison, but God's cause is going forward because it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. People knew he was locked up because he was sharing about Christ. And what also happened is other brothers and sisters, they've become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. They're much more bold to speak the word without fear. Other Christians were saying, hey, if Paul is sharing with his prison guards, then I can share with people that I know too. Now, Paul was human. He's not a superhuman person. And I imagine that if you sat him down and you had a conversation and you said, Paul, be honest with me, would you rather be free or would you rather be in prison? I'm sure he would have chosen his freedom. But what Paul recognized is that God was working even though he was behind bars. And as a prisoner in Rome, he had a unique opportunity to share with people who otherwise would not have heard about Jesus. That's something that wouldn't have happened if Paul wasn't there. He recognized that God was in control of his circumstances and he was using them to bring about new opportunities to talk to those who needed the good news. And others were inspired by that example. Now, maybe you hear this talk about sharing about Jesus while you're in a prison cell and things, and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. Why would somebody do that? Why would somebody, when they're locked up and they have all these problems, take the time to tell others about Jesus? Was Paul crazy? No, no, he wasn't crazy. Paul was in love. He was captivated by someone much more glorious than the suffering he was experiencing in prison. And Paul actually wrote about this person earlier in the book of Colossians. He says this about someone named Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He might be first. Paul's talking about Jesus Christ. He could have this attitude in prison because he knew who Jesus was. Jesus, fully God, fully man, who created the universe, held it all together. And that was more important 
than Paul's suffering. But Jesus didn't just create everything. He did something else. He goes on to explain that a little later. He says, in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile, restore himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven. He made peace by the blood of his cross because Jesus died. He made peace between us and God. As Paul says, you were once alienated. You were separated from God. You were hostile in mind. You did evil deeds. But now God has reconciled, restored you in Christ's body of flesh by his death. He now presents you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. That's saying that Jesus died for us. He lived on our behalf perfectly, and then he died, and by his death, we can now have a right relationship with God. If we grasp that truth, it changes our lives. If it leads us to turn away from our sin and our rebellion, if it brings us closer to God, it can change who we are and change our eternal future. Now we can turn away from our sin. Now we can be restored to God. Now we can be forgiven. And I pray if that's a message you don't know or you never heard, I pray that you would ask someone about that. I pray that you would have a conversation with me or someone else about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's the gospel. Well, what can believers learn from Paul here? He's talking about praying. He's talking about sharing the gospel. Well, we learn how important that is. And we also learn that if we want to share with others, it has to start with prayer. If we're not praying for opportunities to share, then we'll almost never share the gospel. I remember uh, if you've heard uh, Tom Toon speak about evangelism, he talks about the one, two, three, pray. Pray for opportunities to, to share the gospel, the wisdom to see them, and the courage to take those opportunities. This passage tells us that Paul's compelled to tell others about Jesus. He felt it was what he had to do in light of what Jesus had already done for him. We talk many times, the leaders in this church, about how important it is to share the gospel with others. It's not optional. If we're a believer, it's what we should be doing. Not because we'll get a mark against us if we don't, but because we're so passionate about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Now, at this point, you may be sitting there going, this is all wonderful, Pastor John, but what in the world does this have to do with politics? And on the one hand, it really doesn't, which is kind of my point. Paul is unjustly in prison, but he's not arguing for prison reform in Rome, as wonderful as that would be. He wants to share the good news of Jesus. And our priority should be the same. We should be about the Lord's business. And on the other hand, this role of evangelism, this importance of sharing with others, it should affect how we think through political issues. Because politicians want to divide people into groups. These are the good guys, my supporters. These are the bad guys. These people always do right. These people always do wrong. But instead of thinking about people as groups, we should focus on individuals. We should focus on individual people that we can know, befriend, and tell about Jesus. Friends, it's not a country. It's not a nation. It's not a political party. It's not a a group of people that go to hell. It's individuals who go to hell, who are separated from God. Individual people go to hell when they fail to turn away from sin and embrace Jesus Christ. I'm not saying we don't be concerned about what a nation is doing or what 
particular people or political parties are doing. I'm not saying don't be concerned by that, but I'm saying we should be more burdened to share the gospel with every individual that we meet. And so instead of worrying about what those people are doing to our country, we should focus on what I can tell this person and what I can tell that person about God. If you're here today, you don't live in a bubble. You interact with people who do not know Jesus, whether it's in work or even if it's over a Zoom call, you still interact with people who do not know Jesus Christ. And are you as compelled to share with them as Paul was to share with his guards? Or are you more concerned about a political position? So let me make this real. If you know more about a politician's scandals than you know about what's happening in your neighbor or your coworker's life, you have a problem. You have a problem. You should know more about the person, the people you interact with every day. What are their concerns? What are their burdens? What are their struggles? Again, don't misunderstand me. It's not wrong to know what this politician did or said or what that politician did or said, but we are called to love our neighbors more than knowing about people that we probably will never meet. What are your neighbors, coworkers, your classmates concerned about? What are their burdens? What keeps them up at night? Is there a way you can help them? Is there a way you can encourage them? Do you pursue that with as much passion as you go through article after article about politics? Let's move our focus from what's happening out there to what's happening in our lives with the people around us, your individual friends, neighbors, coworkers, and classmates, the people you interact with every day. Remember, the point today is that the daily decisions you make to live for Christ are more important than who you vote for. Taking the time to pray for someone that you know who doesn't know Jesus, that is more important than who you vote for. Praying for an opportunity to share the gospel, that is more important than who you vote for. I hope you read our, uh, our bulletin that we have in the church each week. In that, we have a little section. It's called an evangelism update. It talks about here are some examples of how East Shore members have shared the gospel. I'm not going to read them all, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to briefly touch on a couple things. One says that a friend questioned uh, a believer about how they could get through major trials in their life. You know what? That conversation was more important than who those people were voting for. Several other members passed out flyers where our fall festival invited people to come and get to know people in the church and opportunities to have conversations. That, those invitations, that was more important than who those people were voting for. Another member was asked by a coworker how they remained positive at work. That person who remained positive all that time, making daily decisions to have a positive attitude, reflecting God, those daily decisions and that conversation was more important than who they were voting for. Another coworker asked a member of the church for prayer. That prayer, much more important than who they were voting for. One member had a discussion with a Muslim coworker about how someone gets to heaven. Oh, oh, friends, that conversation was more important than who they were voting for. Another asked a member why they're always so positive and encouraging. That positive, encouraging example that member set, that was more important than who they were voting for. And the last one there is someone shared a eulogy at a funeral talking about God's mercy and the need to have a relationship with him. That opportunity there, that was more important than who they were voting for. And when we change our focus that way, 
then that helps us follow Paul's next instruction that we walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. It's been a while since we looked at it, so I'm going to read verses 5 and 6 again. This is what Paul says. He says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So Paul tells us we're supposed to walk in wisdom. But what does that mean? What, What exactly is he saying there? Well, I think he answers that question in the chapter before this. I'm going to read a couple sections from this chapter that help us understand how believers in Christ are supposed to live. In chapter 3, he says, If you've been raised with Christ, if you have a new relationship with Jesus, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We're to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, because in a spiritual sense, we've died. And our life is now hidden with Christ in God. Believers in Jesus are called to daily act in a way reflecting a mind set on heaven rather than a mind trapped on earth. But very practically speaking, what what does that look like? It's one thing to say have a mind set above, but what does that look like in my life? Well, again, I could tell you, but Paul tells us pretty clearly. He says that negatively, believers are to put to death what is earthly in them, things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion for things that are wrong, evil desire, covetousness, wanting what someone else has. That's idolatry. He says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And he says, in these, you too once walked. There's that word, walked. You once practiced. You once did these things when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, Do not lie to one another because you've put off the old self, the old way you used to live with its practices. You've now put on a new self. You have a new life in Jesus, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I mean, if we come to know Christ, something dramatic has changed in us. We're not supposed to live the way we did before. Jesus has paid for our sins. They are gone and dead. He's put them to death. And so now we're to be proactive in that. I am going to kill, remove sin in my life the same way Jesus did. But it's not just removing something. Walking in wisdom means we're to do something else. He says a few verses later, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I hope you listened carefully to those instructions, because those things that talked about, those aren't things you do once and then it's done. Those aren't things you do once every four years and then you don't have to worry about it. They're not things you decide to do once a month and then you'll be good. No, these actions, these attitudes, they're things that we must decide to practice every day. You're not set for life if you do one compassionate act. Believers daily seek to live out this way. They daily seek to live for the Lord. They daily try to capitalize on every opportunity they have. Here's a moment where I can make a decision for Jesus Christ. 
And that's why Paul's conclusion is whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And if we live this way, if we live differently, it will lead to conversations about why that's happening. Most of those things I talked about from that evangelism update were people saying, there's something different about you. Please tell me what's different in your life. And when that time comes, verse 6 in our text tells us how to respond. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. We're gracious. We overcome misgivings. Those we share with, they're, they're sinners. They'll do things against us. We'll do things against them. We should show them grace and mercy, the same grace and mercy God has shown us. Our speech should be seasoned with salt. We should convey the truth fully. We don't hide truth. We don't minimize it, but we share it in a way that reaches people. We're willing to be answerable. We're willing to answer questions. Another author of scripture, Peter, he wrote about this too. He said, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, for doing something good, you will be blessed. Don't have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who who asks for a reason for this hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So regardless of how somebody else attacks us, we respond with the same grace, communicating the grace that God has shown us. These words of Peter and these words of Paul are very convicting. They're convicting to me because if someone attacks me, I want to respond and attack back, saying I have to make a daily decision. No, I'm not going to respond that way. I'm going to respond differently. I'm going to respond like Jesus did in that moment. We should challenge ourselves. Do we live this way? Do we share graciously or are we harsh and dismissive? Now, once again, you may be thinking, Pastor John, again, what does this have to do with politics? And once again, I say this scriptural wisdom should influence how we interact with politics. Living for the Lord is a very political message. It's the most political message you can have because you're saying Jesus is Lord. He is my master. He is my king. And there are no others that I have loyalty to. That's not something you say once. That's something you have to live out each and every day. A pastor named Trip Lee, he put it this way. He said, it's harder to do a small thing every day than to do a big thing one time. We can muscle up the energy. Oh, I'm going to do this right now. But choosing every day to follow the Lord and honor him, that's much more difficult. But that's what God calls us to do. Again, a vote, I'm not saying voting is not important, but we vote once or twice a year. For president, we vote Once every four years, for other ones like senators are every six years, a judge is every 10 years. But living for the Lord happens each and every day. And this should impact how we think through political issues. I'm just going to talk about a couple right now, a couple big political issues, how we think about living that out every day. Now on these issues, I'm going to probably assume a position. And if you're like, I don't understand why you feel that way, Pastor John, we can have a conversation about that afterwards. And I'll talk to you about it, direct you to some resources to consider. I want to particularly focus on the issue of life. If you say you're pro-life, I think you have the biblical conviction there. I think God values life. But if all that conviction leads you to do 
is to vote for a pro-life candidate, I don't think you fully understand what it means to be pro-life. Because a God-honoring pro-life position means supporting God's gift of life at every stage, in every way possible. Let's look at Paul's words. He starts with prayer. Do you take time to pray about that? Do you daily pray that God would save lives, that lives that haven't started wouldn't be thrown away? Do you take time to pray for that every day? I know some of us went out and we prayed in front of an abortion clinic, praying that God would save lives. And that's, that's wonderful. I'm glad for those who were there. And if you haven't, I encourage you to join us next time. But if that's the only time we're praying about that issue, that's not really being pro-life. That's being it when it's convenient for us. That's not thinking that God values this. And more than that, are we willing to make sacrifices to encourage, defend, support life? Let's think about it this way. If, if abortion ended in our country tomorrow, if that happened, that would be wonderful. But guess what? There would be at least 600,000 new babies every year that would need someone to care for them, provide for them. Are we prepared as a church to do our part in that? Even if that day never comes, are we prepared to step up and to help in that way? And that's why I applaud those in our church who are part of ministries that are reaching those kinds of needs. I think about those who are involved in Bridge of Hope. It's a ministry where we support single mothers and their children We help them to get on their feet, give them a support system around them. That does way more, I feel, for the pro-life cause than just a vote. Not that a vote's not important, but that does so much more. It's making a difference in someone's life that we can clearly see. And I also commend those who don't only talk about, I'm going to care for the least of these, but have gone the extra step of adopting children into their family, fostering or adopting who taking the step of seeing, I'm going to help someone who doesn't have anyone else to live and to thrive. That, I feel, working with Bridge of Hope or adopting someone, I think that does more for the pro-life cause than if every single one of us voted for a pro-life candidate. Not that I'm saying you shouldn't do that. I'm just saying what does more is impacting a direct individual, making an eternal difference. Their impact has the potential to last forever, because that example could lead someone else to do it and could lead these people to know Jesus Christ. Now, time prevents me from addressing more issues in that type of depth, but let's think briefly. Say you hold to what I would call a biblical view of marriage. You believe marriages should be one man and one woman. That's wonderful. But do you take the time to build up marriages? Do you take the time to pray for people you know whose marriages are struggling? Do you take the time to encourage a couple who maybe isn't getting along? Do you reach out and try to help them? If you really cared about biblical marriage, I think you would make that decision every day. If someone came into church and they, it was obvious they weren't uh, married in a biblical sense, would we treat them with love and care? Would we desire to reach them as individuals? Would we treat them the same way we would a couple who's suffering from infidelity or maybe a pornography addiction or they have anger or pride? Would we seek to encourage and seek to lead and point them toward the Lord? Do we bear others' burdens or do we belittle their struggles? What if you're thinking about something like immigration or refugees? I realize there's a lot of different policy positions somebody could take on those issues, but let's talk about what actually may impact us daily. If someone from a Muslim-majority country moves next door, or someone from Mexico or Central America moves next door to you, what is your response then? The answer should be, your answer should be to befriend, 
them, to get to know them, to love them, to share about God with them. Because any other answer is wrong, period. Maybe you're thinking about, well, I think it's important to protect the freedom of religion. Great, we absolutely should do that. But are you using this freedom of religion you have right now? Are you taking the time every day to share about Christ or to pray for those opportunities? Are you using that freedom? Maybe you have a very strong rule uh, view of how the government should be involved in education. And that's fine, but are you modeling biblical discipleship in your house and in your church? Are you taking the time to talk to others? This is how you follow God. Are you taking the time to train somebody? Here's how you can know more about Jesus and grow in your faith. Maybe you're concerned about foreign policy and about relationships between countries. Let's bring it home. Are you passionate about being a peacemaker in your home and in your community? Are you passionate about restoring broken relationships? Because if we're faithful to the Lord in these daily, they seem to be little areas, then we may be surprised at the impact that they can make in our community and then perhaps our country and the world. Because making these decisions can change someone's life eternally. Paul understood this. He wasn't concerned about changing the course of the Roman Empire. I'm sure there's things he thought the Roman Empire was doing wrong, but that wasn't his focus. He was compelled to share with the individual guards who watched over him. Friends, the reason I I talk this way and share this is because I love you and you're my church family and I, I get burdened every time an election comes up when I fear God's people are more focused on something that happens every four years rather than how they can live for the Lord every day. I worry that we may be losing our perspective on the vast difference between what's temporary and what is eternal. Again, I am not saying that elections are not important. I'm not saying don't vote. I am saying, though, they are much less important than we're tempted to give them credit for or that the news tells us they are. I, I have to laugh every four years. And if you believe this, I'm not trying to, to make fun of you, but every presidential election, we hear it's the most important presidential election of our lifetime. They said it four years ago. They're saying it now. They'll say it four years from now. So either somebody lied along the way or, or somehow they just end up getting more important. The, the, the truth is there are much more important things. Consider this presidential election. Whoever wins this year will be in office for four years, or if one candidate wins, it could be eight years. Yes, that's a long time, but, but that's it. And that's nothing compared to eternity. Well, suppose that president does something that makes a dramatic effect for our country. What if it changes how our country works for the next 10 years? What if it changes the way our country works for the next 50 years? What if our country is irreversibly changed for 100 years? What if the next president or whoever wins does something that shapes our history for double how long we've been around, for another 245 years? What if they do that, Pastor John? 245 years is not even a blink in the eye compared to eternity. However, the decisions that you make each and every day about whether you're going to live for the Lord in this moment and that moment, the decisions you make to model Christ's wisdom, the decisions you make to pray for others, extend his love, the decisions you make to tell somebody else about who Jesus is and the difference he can make in their lives, 
those decisions echo throughout eternity. If your Christ-like words and example lead someone to turn from sin, to know Jesus, you will have made an eternal difference. And few politicians or presidents can say that. Neither Paul or any of the other apostles held a political office, but they changed the world because they realized they had a greater treasure and a greater power than any emperor or president could ever hope to have. They knew they were children of God. They had a relationship with Jesus. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they could change the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Friends, brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus, do not waste your life on the things of this world. Be captivated by eternity. There is something eternal worth living for. There's joy in knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior. If I feel like I'm repeating myself, I'm trying to emphasize what I'm saying. I'm not saying that voting on November 3rd is not important. I'm not saying that. I'm not telling you don't vote. I am simply pointing out, and I've said it multiple times, the truth that God's word says who you vote for is less important than the daily decisions that you will make to live for the Lord today, tomorrow, on November 3rd, 4th, and November 3rd, 10 years from now, for the rest of your life. And I was convicted after I wrote this sermon, I was looking at it. Verse 5 says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And obsessing about politics, I don't think that's the best use of our time. We should be about God's kingdom first. So let's be clear. The decision you make every day, if you make a decision to open your Bible and spend time with God, that's more important than who you voted for. If you take time every day to pray to God, say, God, I want to know you more. This is what is on my heart. Help me to know you. If you pray every day when you make that decision, that's more important than who you voted for. The decision you made today to come to church or even to join us online, that is more important than who you vote for. When you have a a conflict or a disagreement with your spouse and you make a decision to be patient and gracious, that is more important than who you vote for. If you're a kid and you make a decision, I'm going to obey what my parent is, is saying right now, my mom or dad, that is more important than who you could vote for. If you make a decision, I'm going to read the Bible today or this week or every day with my family, I'm going to read the Bible with my kids, that decision is more important than who you vote for. If you think, I'm going to run an errand for a friend or a neighbor I have who's sick or one of my church family members who needs something, I'm going to go out and take care of them, be a blessing to them, that is more important than who you vote for. If you decide to listen to someone that you know is hurting and grieving and suffering, and you decide to be there and be a listener, a support, an encourager, deciding to do that, that is more important than who you vote for. If you think, I know somebody who's lonely and someone hasn't reached out to them in a while, I'm going to call that person. That decision is more important than who you vote for. If you decide to send an encouraging message to somebody who you know has been having a rough week, that is more important than who you vote for. If you strive in your own life to kill, remove sin, the things that keep you from God, if you strive to apply every sermon, every lesson you hear, I'm going to take something in, I'm going to apply it to my life today and this week, that decision is more important than who you vote for. If you seek to grow in your faith every day, 
If you follow the Lord in baptism or you participate in the Lord's Supper, that is more important than who you vote for. Friends, I realize an election is big news. I realize you can't turn on the TV, get a newspaper without hearing about it. And yeah, it it makes a difference. it's, It's important. It will have an impact in our lives. But there's no reason to fear the results. Yes, things may change, but we shouldn't let fear control our thinking. God is in control. And whatever happens, whether we're free or in prison like Paul is, that's just a different opportunity to share about Jesus and walk in wisdom. We share about him because Christ died for us. He's the only one who can make us a new creature. He's the only one who can give us eternal life. And if you haven't believed that message, if your life hasn't been changed in that perspective, I encourage you to ask questions about that. Turn from your sin and toward your Savior. And if you're a believer, I hope God will challenge you to live for Him every day. Perhaps you've been spending the past couple weeks or months worried about this election and the future of the country, the direction we're going. Well, I pray that as we respond in song, that you'll repent of that fear, turn away from that and say, God, I'm not going to live in that fear anymore. I'm going to live for you every day. I'm going to make decisions to honor you and trust you with what happens in the future. I'm going to commit to love others. I'm going to commit to share God's love, his truth, his gospel with every person I meet whenever I have the opportunity. And then I pray that together we will worship our Lord and praise our Savior and we'll walk in wisdom every day. I pray that we'll do that for one simple yet glorious reason, that Jesus Christ alone is worthy of that kind of life.